Blog Talk Radio. I think that may be him. Hello. Hi, Robert. Well, speak of the devil. I was just introducing you, sir. Well, I'm here. I'm here for you. Excellent. To all our listeners, let me welcome James Nave to the show. Uh, James is a consummate poet, strategist, creativity consultant, and storyteller. James, I'm so pleased to have you on the show tonight, and I understand you're calling in from, uh, I believe, Nashville. Um, uh, North Carolina, right? Asheville. I'm actually calling in from Asheville. Actually, to be more specific, I'm calling in from Swannanoa, North Carolina. I'm okay. a bit out in the out in the country at a good friend of mine's house, and his house sits on a knoll and surrounded by mountains. And um, I, I'm calling you on Skype. I attempted with my cell phone, but I lost reception. We we're a bit far out, so we have a great high speed. Wireless and a, a poor poor bars. Uh, yeah, well, well, um, I'm glad you were able to uh, get the reception. In that, it sounds like a really ideal mountain retreat you're in. It is. It is. It's really nice. Yeah. Now, now, James, do you prefer to be called James or Nave? Well, I, I. My friends call me Nave, and, and not to be too um, too one name centric. The way that happened years ago, I was actually went by Jim Jim Nave for many years, and uh, this was in 1973. I was introduced to a man standing in front of an antique store. We were just passing the time, and this guy was it was in Cashers, North Carolina, and. This fellow named Roger Grow introduced me to this guy. I don't even remember his name now. And Roger said, "Oh, this is Jim Nave." And the guy looked at me and he said, "Nave, Nave, that's not right. Everybody huh. knows Nave." And um, I was like, "Whoa, I'm open to suggestions." And I like the idea of Nave, so it became a nickname for a long time. And then I changed it later. I thought I, I went moved to a new town, and I thought, what would happen if you moved to a new town? This is on the subject of identity, which is a big subject in in, in creativity, which we'll talk about in a minute. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, what happens if you move to a town and you just tell somebody your name is different than what it actually is? Mm. How long? What what will happen? Well, what happens is that once you say your name, no matter what you say, the people you introduce yourself to will always know you as that. And they will right. resist anything else. 
so I was known as Jim Nave for the longest time. And then a friend of mine and I worked together um, in a freelance situation a, a couple of years later, maybe maybe three or four years later. And um, we were building building a, a barn, and his name was James Wilson, and I was Jim Nave, and he was from Florida, and he had gone to private schools. So he called me Nave. And I called him Wilson because that was his tradition in the schools he'd been to. So he would say, oh, Nave passed me the hammer. Or I would say, okay, Wilson, here's the hammer. So uh-huh. that's how Nave emerged. So now I'm, I go by Nave, which is fun. Right. Well, so I'm going to call you Nave if that's okay. You can call me Nave. Okay. Fun. So what attracted you to creativity? Oh, I think a better way for me to answer that question than to directly say, tell you what attracted me to creativity, more to frame it around how I became more aware of my potential as a creative person. And the reason is because I believe that creativity is, is a DNA imperative. And I think we, as human beings, have no choice. We must be creative. That's what we were put here on Earth to do. And I define creativity as, well, I frame creativity around the notion of making things. And human beings make things. We, we, put, we put things together and create new things. And we do it sometimes for good and we do it sometimes for bad. If if you look around in your life, everything that you see is driven by some sort of notion of design and some sort of notion of taking a stick and a rock and putting it together in some order that creates a form that sometimes has function or maybe sometimes is just there because it's interesting to be it's interesting to create. So I was the I became more aware of creativity, and and the and, and as I be as I started to become more aware of it as a possibility for me, and, and as something I could do as much as I pleased, that's when I became more drawn to it. So it's a bit more like um, you discover the chocolate shop, and then suddenly you're drawn to it. So it, my intrigue and my interest, my curiosity has grown over the years because I've just allowed myself to be more aware of the potential that I have, not only that, but potential also other people have as well. So would you then call it a natural evolution and more like an organic process which drew you to creativity? Well, I mean, it's. It, I learned early on that if I wanted to live a freelance life, which I've done, and wanted to create my create my um, work situation on my own terms. I had to be pretty quick about it, and and I had to be reasonably smart, maybe even smart. I had to be um, street smart, certainly. And I use street smart in the sense of you're out in, out out in the world and you have to think on your feet improvisationally. Uh, so I certainly have grown to understand the power of it 
and as a result, I've learned to to use it more and more and more. So now it's 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 you know my version of creativity is second nature to me. I don't know how not to do it, and and I believe that other people. I, I think everybody has that. It's just that some people are more aware of it and, and are willing to call it that. And other people might say, "I don't have a creative bone in my body," and yet if you right. look at what they do, you know, they do they do a lot of creative. Right. I mean, I think everybody uses creativity in what they do, whether or not they their self describe creative types or not. Right. I, 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 that's my. That's what I view in the world. Now, if you wanted to move into the way we use that term in our culture today, the self described creatives or the creative culture or the the creatives as they call them, like for example in New York, where you and I spend a lot of time you know it's a it's a it's a center for creativity on, on in almost every domain and um so some people do decide they're going to to use use their creative potential as much as they possibly can and they set their intention to move in that direction and they develop themselves around that idea and that's when things start to really pop. Now, would that would one person have more creative uh, traction than another if they both work the same at the same concentrated level in the same genre? Maybe so. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I think that's a, that's a tough call. Oh, um, it's almost impossible to talk about. It's like it's like say, what is art? You know, we can right. talk about that all night, and, and nobody will ever figure out. Nobody can will ever really agree on. It. And let me let me ask you this: so, so you had a general attraction to the idea of creativity, and you wanted to create your own work environment, call the shots in your work life. What was what were some of the first areas that you were drawn to uh, in the work field? Uh, in terms of uh, being an outlet for your creativity? Well, hmm. I mean, as a kid, I once dug up a whole bunch of sapling pine trees and sold them to a neighbor for profit, wheeled them around (laughs) the wagon, you know. So, I I mean, where does it begin? Um, And and I I was, um, when I was a senior in high school, I... I helped my grandmother self-publish a poetry book. So I was a publisher when I was a senior in high school. Wow, back that's in, impressive. Back in, well, it was back in the days of vanity presses, you know. And so we, and I had, I had, a, I had a, one of my, I think it was Elaine Hyatt. If I, I don't know her name. I think it, that was her name. She, she was the editor, and she, she helped compile it. And, and um, I think maybe my grandmother indulged us actually because she may well have edited it herself. She was was an educated woman. She graduated from Meredith College in Raleigh, North Carolina in 1919. So uh, she was a poet in her own right, for sure. So I did that. And then when I, um, um, you know, I, in my 20s, I, I had a pizza restaurant and, and made pizza. Um, I worked, um, I, I was collaborator in a, in a design company called Airy Design, and we sold uh, screen-printed T-shirts all over the country uh, in, in hiking stores. And I was, you know, more or less a sales rep. I also printed the shirts, uh, 
helped work with the strategy on the company. Uh, that was when James Wilson and I, Wilson and Nade, were building the barn because we built the barn to print the shirts in. And right. um, so, so I, I was always trying to figure out, and always have been trying to figure out ways I could make a living and still continue with my lifestyle without having to to punch a clock at the at the the um pleasure of somebody else. Now the downside of that is sometimes maybe I was off on my own journey and maybe overlooked a wonderful collaborative opportunity with a great company and, you know, blind and stubborn as I was and young, I just marched off into the sunset and maybe missed something really dynamic with um with a great group of people. So I'm not saying that it was always the best idea, but that was what right. drove me. And then, you know, when I was in my, um, I dropped out of college and went back to college when I was in my early 30s. And uh, that was when I started memorizing poetry. And that was when I got involved in in a really serious business. At first, it seemed like a, a, a whim. Uh, my, my buddy, Bob Falls, who was living in Asheville, he and I went to the National Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee. And at the Storytelling Festival, which is going to celebrate its 40th year this October, we had these fabulous storytellers on stage. And I'm in the audience thinking, well, now here's where the question of creativity comes in. You know, I had a pizza restaurant and I printed T-shirts and I'd done this and that and had fun with it, but I'd never done any of the arts. I'd never thought, wow, I could be on stage, I could be a storyteller, I could make that leap from selling a T-shirt in a hiking store in California to standing on stage and having somebody listen to me as a, as a teller. I didn't even know what it was I wanted to tell, nor did I know how to speak in public. But when right. I was sitting in an audience with Bob listening to those stories, I felt that tug that sometimes we often feel in a direction that seems a bit unfamiliar on one level and yet very familiar on another. And I was thinking, wow, I would like to do that. And then the next thought was, I don't know how. It wasn't that I didn't think, I didn't think I would like to do that. I can't. I thought, I don't know how. And I think there was somewhere in me, some entrepreneurial side that said, well, if I don't know how, I could probably figure out how. Uh And so... When we were, long story short, about a month later, Bob and I were still talking about it, and he said, well, you know, nobody at at Jonesboro was memorizing poems and performing them. Everybody told stories, but nobody nobody was telling poems, and there were no male storytelling teams. And so Bob, you know, who I met Bob, I actually had met Bob when I was running a hiking store, and had bought a bunch of books from Bob and his wife Peggy, who were who had a, a, a store in Asheville, uh, uh, guiding books, and that was like a couple of years before Bob and I went off to Jonesboro, and so so Bob knew I was had been in business, and Bob was also in business, and he was working for the Social Security Commission and all these other twisty little tales, and I, we said, well, I said, well, sure, man, you know, we can do that, and that same time, at that same time, I was memorizing, I, I was taking a literature course. In, in romantic literature, and and I came across Ulysses by Alfred Lord Tennyson, and my mother had recited the poem to me when I was a boy. She had said, "You are a part of all that you have met, yet all experience is an arch where through gleams that untraveled world 
whose margin fades forever and forever as you move. And that's a quote from Ulysses. So when I stumbled onto that, I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to memorize this poem. Right. And Bob said, well, if you, mem- you have Ulysses, so if you have Ulysses, I'll, I'll memorize one. You memorize another. We'll have four. We'll have a show. We started with that, and then we moved from that to memorizing a two-hour show, moved from that to getting hired at universities, and moved from that to booking ourselves all over the country as performance artists, not knowing a thing about how to do it. We just had a director that helped us. And then from that was in 1984. By 1987, no, by 1988, we had sets, five teams of poets traversing the country, performing poetry from September until um, until May, and um, that continued on. I sold my share to Bob in 1991. We had seven poets on the road, and we were traveling internationally. Bob sold it last year to some people who took it over, Poetry Alive, it was called. And by the time Bob sold it, 25 years later, Poetry Alive had performed for 10 million plus school students and was wow. a child name for how to study poetry in secondary schools. We'll do poetry alive. And the idea was to memorize poems from the school textbook, perform in this theater, and then teach the students how to perform the poetry as a way to study it. Not, not any different than acting. You know, you memorize the script, you've got to know what the, what the playwright or the screenwriter meant, meant when he was writing the script or she was writing the script. So that's that's that, pretty that, amazing. It got started on that, and it, it, it became a real. I mean, Bob did really, really well when he sold it. It was a it was a million dollar a year business, and um, and this was back in the time when people were saying you can't make money on art. You know, schools are broke. Uh, but what we did, and to to, and Bob had we both had this vision, and Bob pushed it because he was more of a bureaucrat than anything. He worked for the Social Security Administration. Bob made a hundred phone calls a day. And that hundred phone calls equaled a million dollar a year business. Wow! And I'm not joking. Paul, I mean, he would, and, and, and you know, he would dial a hundred numbers in a day, and he would do it till he would do a hundred, and then he would quit. And if it took him, and 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 most of them he didn't get through. So it's not like he had a hundred phone conversations. He probably had right. fifteen conversations. But you know, he he sold those shows like crazy. And when we first started, we oversold the shows. We we had we had bookings for four teams or three or four teams, and it was just Bob. Bob and I were the only. To poets, we didn't even have anybody. We had to hire people. It was a circus, huh. man. I tell you, we were on the road. At one time, I could drive almost anywhere in the country without a road map. Wow! Just go, you know. Well, 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 we'll drive to Boulder. Okay. Oh, uh, could you run up to Missoula? Sure, no problem. <laughs> it's like <laughs> so. That's that's how. So, so back to the whole question of creativity. Sitting there in, in, at the, at the, in the auditorium in the tents at Jonesboro, and I know a lot of people who are listening to this or who will tune in sometime later and stream it all over the world, maybe have had that experience. You're sitting there, and you feel a tug, and you wonder, how can I possibly do that? Right. And most of the time, people, people discount it. And they think, well, that's not something I could possibly do. And I will tell you, I know that that is not true because Bob Falls and I, albeit somewhat talented, and we were, we were pretty good. But, I mean, we weren't geniuses at this. We just thought it would be a better way to earn a living than working at a, at a, at a, at a non-entrepreneurial job. Right. Anything, we were, you know, entrepreneurs looking for an interesting way to, to turn a buck. 
fine. And, and do some art as well, you know, and get in. You know, I wanted to get into the art thing, but I didn't quite know how, so we just plowed into it. And and it turned out we were, we also, I got involved in the poetry slam scene, and, you know, as it turned out in 1984, that was the beginning of what has now become the spoken word movement in America. And, and uh, I also got involved in the slam, which was a non-commercial thing, the poetry slam and the spoken word crowd. That's more for love, but... Honestly, it has grown. All it's it's all, it's global, and so I was early days. We were involved in the very beginning of what has now grown to to be a cultural phenomenon that seems to have no end to it. Unbelievable. Yes, really. There, I'm really, I'm really proud of this crowd of people that I've been associated with over the years who've made these contributions. And it really shows you that, like you said a few minutes earlier, when you have these inklings or these feelings that uh, really nothing is impossible. There's a way to do, there's a way to follow through on it and to to actually do it. Well, well, yeah. And and what happens so often when people are sitting in the audience, like I, I was, looking at maybe Connie Reagan Blake or Jail Callahan or Waddy Mitchell or just to name a few. Barbara Freeman uh, to go on. Um, because we live in a culture, and we live in, and this would, for anyone streaming outside of the, outside of America, they will maybe get a different, have a different frame around this. But for people who live in America, we, we frame everything around work. And I think that's a good thing up to a point. Mm-hmm. And that point is, it's when you have the creative inkling, because we are so work inclined, we default to commercialization and work. You know, can you make a living at it? Uh, you know, and, and if people think they can't make a living at it, or think it's too much of a stretch and maybe it's the risk is too high, they tend to shy away from it and think, well, I can't waste my time on that. Because it's, because it's not well, practical. Because it's not practical. Yeah, and it, it's not right. not nuts and bolts, and it's not on the factory floor. And again, I mean, we are a nation uh, uh, built on work, and I'm as much a worker as anybody. And I, I nailed as many nails, and dug the holes, and fixed the cars, and built the this and the that, and worked all the construction and everything. That said. I think we we do ourselves a great disservice as a as a, a nation when we default immediately in the creative realms to commercialization. And the reason, main reason why is because, and there's a paradox here, because the the deeper you get into the creative realms, especially one that feeds your heart, the more you will, the more engaging you will be in, more engaged you will be across the board, and as a result, the more successful you will be in your creative choices. That's why physicists play jazz, right? And you know, my father played the fiddle when he was a, when I was growing up, and he worked for the power company. And I learned to play the guitar when I was young, and I would play guitar with him. And he was an old time Appalachian fiddler, and. Even to this day, you still can find this. You go to these enclaves of, of musicians, and they gather every every Thursday or Monday or whatever, and they play till the wee hours. And they all work at the power company or the phone company or sell insurance or fix cars or, you know, deliver 
gas canisters to the beer joints or whatever, and, you know, they play music at night, and they don't identify themselves as musicians. They think of themselves as people that play music. And yet the right. lives are immensely, immensely uh, um, better for the notes that they pick on the guitar or the banjo or, the, or blow on the harp or the or the fiddle. Right. Um, that's. I, I think. I think you have a really interesting perspective on this, and I. I totally embrace it, and I think that. That it's really. I think it's really about people not setting limitations in their lives, uh, because I find the same thing. Uh, although my background is totally different than yours, I also had an idea as to how I wanted to live my life, and. I find it sometimes very interesting when people will ask me now, well, how do you earn a living? <laughs> because the question itself is such a very narrow question. It's, it's a, it is a narrow question, and most people don't really want to know. If people ask me that question too, Robert. And I, I say, well, do you really you really want me to explain how I do this? Right. Because we'll sit for about an hour for me to do this because it's not – it, it's it's a complicated explanation. So you learn to just I learned to just you know give give a little brief something and move on, and that usually satisfies. Right, but but the questions really um, say more about the person asking them than about any information they might get in an answer. You know, and that's uh, that's quite true. That's quite true, and and it may be that that when we're back to that question of creativity and sitting in the audience and making that leap to the stage, you know, the metaphorical stage, whatever that is you, you want to do creatively, it feels a bit distant. So often those questions are questions that are, that they're curious about it, so people, maybe they would like to do it themselves, and often actually I've started to, I mean, I teach creativity, work, I can't teach creativity, I facilitate workshops that allow people to muddle, you know, muck around in their creative stuff. But right. in creativity workshops, uh, or when somebody walks up to me and asks that question, I, I, I generally turn it around on them and, and deflect back because mostly people love to talk about themselves. I mean, I like to talk about myself now. This is great. Thank you. I appreciate you having me here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, well, I'm, I'm enjoying I'm listening to you talk about yourself tonight. I'm not that different than anybody else. And so somebody says, "What what do you do?" You give I give them a brief answer, and then I maybe would ask, "Well, oh, I, well, what do you do? What do you what do you love right. to do?" And and that's it. They they are they're off, and they completely forget they asked me the question. Right. <laughs> I like yeah, I like to do something very similar myself, so I completely understand oh. that. Uh, you know, believe it or not, we're almost out of time. We have only about three minutes left. Do you want to talk a little bit about the artist's way and how you got involved in that? Well, three minutes is a short time to, to talk about it, but I can give you the brief. Um, okay. In 1995, I met Jodie Cameron. Jodie Cameron asked me to teach artist way creativity camps with her in Taos, New Mexico. Went down with no idea of what the artist way really was other than the fact that I had done it once. And Jodie and I started working in Taos, and we went from we went for about uh, from 1995 to 2001, teaching creativity camps in Taos, and, and now I'm still teaching Artist Way at the New York Open Center. I took Julia's place, and she moved to Santa Fe, and I, she asked me to come and teach in, in her place, and I could take her place. I couldn't take her place, but I did come, and 
So um, I've been working with people on their creative dreams ever since. And I've learned a lot about it, Robert. That's probably why I can be as relaxed and comfortable about these conversations as I am regarding what motivates people to want to move deeper into the the urges that their soul um, soul signals. Right. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's an interesting shift when when people do that. And I I think that um, you know it's almost as if we all have the potential to do that because it, you know it's rare that I meet anybody that I think doesn't have some talent that's that's worth developing, and it's just a question of of facilitating that and believing in believing that it could happen. Uh, easy to say, you know. You know, it's easy for me to to sit here talking to you and say it's obviously takes a huge commitment of time and effort to make it a reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I did want to just as we close, one of the things I think is really important to put a nice little ending on this is this business of boundaries. And when you when when there are limitations in our lives, I am five eight. I will not be playing professional basketball, and also six two. Okay, that I have some limitations. My plea to people is do not put those limitations on at the beginning. Let those limitations appear as you work the craft and find your way around the limitations in the same way that you would find your way around the rocks as you run a river in a kayak. I, I think that's great advice, actually. And uh, before we do get cut off, Nave, I want to thank you so much. The time You're just welcome. literally flew, and you really gave me an interesting uh, perspective on not just what you did, but the whole creative process and what's available to all of our listeners. So thank you again, James Nave, creativity consultant, poet, storyteller, strategist, uh, jamesnave.com. That's your website. and. Yeah. Good evening to all my listeners, and thank you for tuning in to Monergy Life. Thanks again, Nave. Good evening. Thanks so much, y'all. Good night.